I love that last song that we just sang. It's such a good and a sweet reminder that our assurance does not come from our performance, but it comes fully from Christ. That is a message you're going to hear over and over, hopefully, today as we continue our journey through the book of Exodus. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles or turn on your Bibles to Exodus chapter 7. We're going to be taking a look at verses 1 through 13. And so in the story right now, the Israelites are in a pickle. Their long-awaited Savior has finally come, Moses, but it seems like he has actually made things worse than better. Instead of rescuing them and redeeming them, in their words, Moses has caused them to stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants. And now even Moses is doubting his calling. He's doubting God's plan. And so last week in chapter 6, we saw God's response to all of their doubts. And God doesn't get angry with them. He doesn't get flustered by them. He doesn't try to boost their self-esteem. Instead, what does he do? He reminds them over and over of his character, of his past faithfulness, and of his promises. And so even though all of these reminders are given to Israel, they still don't listen to God. They don't listen to these reminders, but God in his grace continues to move forward to redeem them. And Moses, at the very end of that chapter, is still protesting and complaining and saying, look, God, I can't do it. I mean, if, if Israel doesn't listen to me, how in the world am I going to get Pharaoh to listen to me? And so that's where we leave off. And that brings us to our text this morning. At the beginning of chapter 7, what we have is God responding to Moses' protest. And so as we read this, I want you to notice a few things. First of all, I want you to notice that God shares his purpose for why he is redeeming Israel in such a dramatic way. He shares his purpose and why he's doing it that way. And also I want you to notice how God prepares Moses for this next meeting with Pharaoh and, and how he provides for him this prophetic sign. And, and really at the heart of this passage, what we're going to see is a foreshadowing of redemption, of both the, the redemption that, is, that Israel is going to experience here from Egypt, but also our own redemption. And so let's pray one more time, and then we're going to dive into this text. God, I do ask once again that you would, you would help us to see and to really marvel at your redemptive work. Remind us once again that your grace truly is amazing. I pray that you would soften our hearts to see that, that you would instill in us a greater hope in you, and you would help us to know and to believe your sovereign grace I pray that you would instill in us a greater sense of your presence and your love towards us, that you would instill in us a greater boldness to be able to proclaim this good news to others, and that you would instill in us a sense of peace and rest, knowing that you have already won the victory for us. Help us to believe. Help us to believe in your promises. In Jesus' name, amen. So we pick up in chapter 7, starting in verse 1, and this will be up on the screen too if you don't have a Bible. And the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. 
And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourself by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. And so Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants And it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. All right, let's walk through this passage. Okay, we're going to start at the very beginning again. Look at verse 1 and 2. God is encouraging Moses here, and he says, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land. Now, remember, this is in response to Moses saying, Look, the Israelites are not listening to me. How in the world is Pharaoh going to listen to me? And so God responds by encouraging him, by reminding him, and this is not the first time he's told Moses this, you're not going to be the one talking. Okay, remember back in chapter 4, Moses was complaining, I'm not a good speaker. And so God says, okay, I'll send Aaron with you, your older brother, and he will do the talking for you. And so God is saying, look, you're just going to be in the back of the room kind of standing there like the muscle, right? And, And really the only muscle you have is me, so you're okay, you're good. I can handle this. And so he encourages them that way. And then next in verse 3, he encourages them again by saying, look, Moses, you're right. He's not going to listen to you, but you know what? Remember, that's part of my plan. Okay, and again, this is not the first time Moses has heard this. God has over and over told Moses that I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. In fact, he's going to see multiple signs and wonders, and he's still not going to listen to you because I'm going to harden his heart, but this is part of of my plan. This is how I'm going to achieve my goal. Look at verses 4 and 5. This is where God explains to Moses what his goal is. He says, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out, to the land, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Look at verse 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. So the purpose of God hardening Pharaoh's heart and sending all of these miracles, these signs, these plagues down on Egypt was so that the Egyptians would know that he was Yahweh. That, he would know, that they would know that he was Yahweh. You're going to see that theme over the next several chapters. Over and over, God says, so that they would know that I am the Lord. In chapter 9, verse 16, he's explicit about this. God's talking to Pharaoh and he says, But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all of the earth. Proverbs 16.4 says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. 
There is nothing outside the sovereign will of God Almighty. His ultimate goal is to glorify himself. His ultimate goal is to make himself known, and that is good news for us because what he's doing in, in that is he is very passionate about giving us the greatest gift in the entire universe, which is himself. He wants us to know him so that we would enjoy him. Verse 6, Moses and Aaron, they obey God, right? They did just as the Lord commanded. And then verse 7, I love this. Moses adds this little commentary here just to remind us that he is the ripe old age of 80. And I think this is Moses saying, look, I was an old man when this happened. There was no way I was intimidating Pharaoh. This is all God's work. Okay, this is all God doing this, uh, and it's also a good message to us today that you are never too old to be used by God. Now, God moves from explaining the purposes of why he is redeeming Israel in such this, this dramatic fashion. From that, he then goes on to prepare Moses for this next encounter with Pharaoh, and he explains in detail what he and Aaron are about to do when they face off against Pharaoh. Look back at verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourself by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. Now remember, this is the staff of God, okay? This is a, this is a significant staff that has been given to Moses and given to Aaron uh, for the unique purpose of showing his sovereignty over Pharaoh, showing God's sovereignty over Pharaoh. And so you're going to see this staff over and over come into the story. And if you recall back to chapter 4, this is the sign that, one of the signs that Moses was told to show Pharaoh to prove that his message was truly from God. It's a significant sign. It's a very significant sign. It's loaded with meaning. And so what God is doing here, it would be the equivalent of like you walking into the White House and going into the Oval Office right before the President of the United States and taking an American flag with you and burning it right before the President. Okay, it's a huge slap in the face. The, a snake or a serpent to Egypt was like a national symbol. Uh, it, they believed it to be the first offspring of primeval earth. Uh, they identified it with the gods of Seth and Apophis. Uh, the, the snake symbol was actually on the crown of the, the pharaoh as a symbol of his sovereignty. And so the staff in Egypt was also very symbolic. It was used by rulers as a symbol of absolute power. And so here, this is what God's doing. He's giving a very important message to Pharaoh. Your power is puny compared to mine. Your power is puny compared to mine. And what happens next is really a foreshadowing of what's going to come. Look back at verse 11. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers and the magicians of Egypt also did the same by their secret acts. For each man cast down a staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Now, we don't exactly know how these magicians were, were doing this. We don't know if it was some kind of sleight of hand. I know still in Egypt today, there's snake charmers that can somehow hypnotize snakes and make them look kind of stiff. Um, maybe it was black magic. We don't know. It doesn't really matter because that's not the point here. Uh, the, the point is Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. And, and the language of swallowing up is really interesting. It's really significant, I think. 
Because the next time and the only other time that swallowing up that phrase occurs in all of the book of Exodus is in chapter 15, Exodus 15. And this is after the Israelites, right after they cross the Red Sea on dry land and the Egyptian army, what happens to them? They get crushed by the water, right? And right after that, Moses sings a song, a worship song, and he describes what happens to the Egyptian army. He says in verse 12, you stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. And so here, at the very beginning of all the, the drama and in the, in the plagues, we have this sign, and God turns a staff into a snake, and he swallows up the magician's staffs. At the end, after the exodus, what does God do? God has Moses raise his staff, and the Red Sea swallows the Egyptian army. Now, I think it's also interesting, um, as I was studying this and looking at some commentaries, uh, often we use the, the phrase, the ten plagues. And if you look back, in the, that's traditional, but it's not really a biblical expression. And in fact, if you look back through this passage, the, the typical word used for plague in the, in the Hebrew is this word that just simply means a miraculous sign. And so Moses actually shows them 11 miraculous signs, this being the first of the 11. We don't typically put it with the plagues because it's not all that devastating, but this was the first sign given. And it was hugely symbolic. It very much showed what God had planned to do with Egypt, to swallow up their pride and to show them that he is the Lord, not Pharaoh, not all these other little gods that they're worshiping. But I think also, we're meant to see a bigger picture here. I think we're, we're supposed to see something else going on here. This is not merely a battle between Egypt and Israel. This is not merely a battle between Moses and Pharaoh. This is really a battle between God and Pharaoh. And I think ultimately this is a, a battle between God and Satan that's going on here. This is a picture of, a, of the battle, the, the spiritual battle going on between God and Satan. I don't think it's a coincidence that Pharaoh wore a snake on his crown. Later on in the Old Testament, he's described as a snake. Who else is a snake? <laughs> Satan, both in Genesis and in Revelation, is described as a snake. Now, when it comes to Satan, I think C.S. Lewis is, is really wise to encourage us not to go to either extreme with Satan. There's some people who just completely ignore, or they don't even believe in Satan, they just, or, or they just ignore him completely, and that's one extreme. And I don't think we should go there because he is a problem. I'm going to show you that in a minute. But on the other extreme, you've got people that they're so infatuated with fighting Satan that everything turns into a spiritual battle against him. They're exercising demons out of their kids all the time. You're, you're, you're setting up hedges of protection around everything. You're constantly looking to find and bind the territorial spirits. And so I, I don't think today what I want to do is try to guide us to a better way of dealing with Satan. Because I don't think Satan should be simply ignored. Okay, he's mentioned hundreds of times in the New Testament, and, and so he is a problem. Let, let me give you just a brief survey of all the havoc that Satan stirs up in our world. In John 8, Jesus calls Satan a murderer, a liar, the father of lies, that uh, it's his nature to lie, so that's what he does. Matthew 4, 3, he's called the tempter. That's when he was going to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. In 2 Corinthians 2, Paul describes one of the purposes or the designs of Satan is to cultivate unforgiveness in the hearts of God's people. I mean, he loves 
to create division and discord among us. In 1 Thessalonians 2.18, Paul blames Satan for hindering him from sharing the gospel. Revelation 12, Satan is called the accuser, the one who accuses us day and night before God. 2 Timothy 2.26, Paul describes the devil as having a spiritual snare by which he seeks to capture people to do his will. 1 Peter 5.8, Peter compares him to a lion prowling around looking for someone to, to devour. He's a hunter. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul calls the thorn in his side a messenger of Satan. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Paul says that he's blinded the mind of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. Paul calls him the God of this world or the, the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2. I could go on. I think you get the idea, though. Satan is a problem. We ought not just ignore him. But here, the way that you deal with Satan is not by focusing on Satan. The way that you deal with Satan is by focusing on Christ. Because in Christ, we don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. Like the song we just sang about. That's what we sang about. Christ has already won the spiritual battle for us. And it starts back in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, when God curses Satan, the snake, for deceiving Eve, this is what he says to him in verse 14. Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And listen to verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is one of the most significant passages in all the Bible, because it's the first place where we have a foreshadowing of Jesus. It's the first place we have a foreshadowing of the gospel. It's, it, it, this is Jesus. Yes, he's going to get bruised or, or, or hurt on his heel, but he's going to crush the head of the serpent. Okay, so yes, Satan, you're going to make him bleed. You're going to make him hurt but he will destroy you. The author of Hebrews in the New Testament, he puts it this way, that through death he, talking about Jesus, might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And so yes, Jesus would go to the cross, but that would not be his end, right? He would raise, be risen from the grave. And it's through his death he would destroy death and the one who has the power of death. Now, Satan helped to bring death into the world by deceiving Eve into believing that she could be her own God. And we've all suffered because of that. In fact, we've all fallen into the same deception. We, we want to think that we can be our own God. We want to believe that we are self-reliant. But God, is, in his infinite wisdom, he takes the death that we deserve because we've been trying to be our own God and been rebellious against God, we've committed treason against God, but God in His infinite wisdom and in His grace, He takes the death that we deserve. He graciously gives us life by sending the serpent crusher, Jesus. Now, we know from the New Testament that even after the resurrection, Satan still lurks around like a lion, ready to devour. But his fate was sealed on the cross. And so Paul ends his letter to the Romans by saying, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Paul very much looked forward to the prophecy that John talks about in Revelation chapter 20, where he says, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire 
and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. One day, just like these snakes that were swallowed up by Aaron's staff, and just like the Egyptian army that was swallowed up by the Red Sea, one day Satan will be swallowed up by the lake of fire. So Exodus chapter 7 should really be an encouragement to us because it foreshadows the ultimate defeat and swallowing up of Satan. See, if you're united to Christ, you can look forward with great confidence to the day that Satan will no longer have any kind of sway in your life or in this world. No longer will he be able to tempt you or uh, accuse you. Jesus on the cross won the decisive battle for us. He removed Satan's most deadly weapon of accusation. And, And so when Satan whispers in your ear, you're guilty, you're worthless, you're nothing, there's a louder message in the gospel that says there is now no condemnation for you. You are accepted, you are loved, you are adopted. Not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done. He removed Satan's most deadly weapon. Jesus satisfied the wrath of God that we deserve. He paid the debt that we owed because of our sin, and he graciously gives us his right standing before God so that there is no condemnation. And right now, where is Jesus? At the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. J.D. Greer, he shares the story of the pioneer days, and he says it's a true story. I'm not sure exactly where he got it from. Uh, it talks about this father and son who, they're, they're living in this field, uh, and they wake up to this smell, and they see on the horizon this fire that is rushing towards them, and so they begin to run away from the fire, but the father realizes pretty quickly that they're not going to be able to outrun this fire. And so the father, uh, what he does is kind of weird, but he, he, he starts a fire in the middle of the field and he makes this circle, this big circle, and he lets the fire go out real quick. And then right before the fire is about to consume them, he, has, he takes his son and he stands in the middle of that circle. And as the fire comes, it burns all around them, but it does not burn them up because the place where they were standing had already been burned. What Jesus did for us, he took the accusations and he took the threats of Satan, all the power and all, the, all of death and, and sin, and he was burned by it in your place. So that when you stand in him, like we sang about earlier today, Satan cannot ultimately overcome you. Your assurance is not in yourself or in your performance. It's ultimately in Christ and what he's done. And because Jesus has already absorbed the wrath that you deserve, uh, there is no condemnation. Jesus did not just die for you. He died instead of you. Death and sin were swallowed up by Jesus. Satan has no more claim on you if you are in Christ. And so if you're in Christ, that means you fight from victory, not for victory. And so back in Exodus, this is what Moses does. From here on out, this is Moses' mentality moving forward with Pharaoh. He has no more excuses for God. 
His confidence is through the roof, not because of himself. He's 80 years old. He, he, he still has uncircumcised lips, but his confidence moved from himself to God. And so because of that, he's got no more questions. God tells him over and over to go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses no longer hesitates. And what we see finally, after Pharaoh lets the Israelites go, after the, the, the final plague, he, he finally is like, I've had enough. You can go. He says, get out of here. And so they go and they go and they, they come to the Red Sea, right? And God hardens Pharaoh's heart one more time for a reason. And what happens? He, the Pharaoh sends the Egyptian army after them. And so here the Israelites are between the Red Sea, sandwiched between the Red Sea and this Egyptian army coming at them. And I, I'd like you to go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 14 because I want you to see this. Exodus chapter 14, verses 10 through 14. And in Exodus chapter 14, the Israelites are stuck in this position and they're freaking out, right? And what I want you to notice is how differently Moses responds now. Pick up with me in verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up, lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us to bring us out of Egypt. Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would be, have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Okay, so again, they're freaking out, right? Now listen to how Moses responds, and notice how much different this is than he had responded, different from how he had responded in the past. Verse 13, and Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. This is the good news of Jesus. He has already fought for you, and you only need to be silent and rest in him and his saving works. He has won the victory for us. There is now no condemnation for us, because he has sent the Satan crusher. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That even though, gosh, we were your enemies, that there was nothing in us that longed for you or wanted you, Yet even in the midst of us hating you, you sent your son to die in our place. I pray that we would never get over that. Thank you for crushing Satan and giving us hope that one day we will be completely free of his torments. Thank you for absorbing the wrath that we deserve. I pray that we would rest in your promises. And that in that, you would, you would embolden us to tell others about the good news of your saving work. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, if you're a, a visitor with us,